Hey, everyone. For this week, I had the chance and pleasure to speak to Seneca Scott, who is a Oakland resident running for mayor this year in 2022. Um, he gave me what he calls the green pill, and we talked about his past, his philosophical framework, his solutions to problems facing Oakland, and I think he's an interesting, independent, nonpartisan character that um, you should listen to. Anyway, here's an interview with him. Thanks, Seneca. Enjoy. I really appreciate your time. I was uh, looking through your Twitter feed, your bio, reading articles about you. You really stood out. I, I used to live in uh, the Bay Area. I had a warehouse in Oakland. And I mean, before we start that, maybe you can tell me about where you grew up. And I know you went to Cornell and maybe some of your background before um, what you're doing now. Um, uh, I have some civil rights lineage on my father's side with Coretta Scott King and my grandfather's lineage. So my father's first cousin and my first cousin wants to move. Uh, and we've always had a proud history of just being involved in the neighborhood. My mother's been a long time union rep. She's held every elected position, her chief union over the years. And just being um, engaged people in our church and our community and in the workplace. And so I was actually conceived in Isfahan, Iran, although my parents made it back in 1979, right before I was born in May. In uh, late spring, so they just—I just barely missed the cutoff for being able to run for president of the United States um, by being born on the mainland. Because you know, I would have been born in in either Europe or in the Middle East where I was conceived at. And I what, came to Oakland. What, what were your parents doing in Iran? Uh, a lot of Black Americans moved to the Middle East during the seventies to escape. The bad economy, uh, racism, looking for greener pastures. My father was a photographer. He worked with uh, Bell helicopters, taking pictures of the oil fields on on helicopters with tele like like long lenses, really skilled work, and did some photojournalism. My mother was uh, was a writer and and sort of like bohemian, if you will. And my father's older brother had moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, he worked for the Air Force and was doing research on uh, the Black Hawk helicopter, uh, which he actually is one of the people who helped invent that technology back in the, in the uh, early 80s. So a lot of people don't know this, but before, before Air Spring of 79, it was like Dubai over there. Like Lebanon, Beirut was a beautiful coastal city. I mean, it's, it's returned to prominence. Not it's old glory, but it's not a war-torn shell anymore. But before the, the that happened, it was beautiful. My parents had seaside, you know, houses and multiple vehicles, and they had all their money in Iranian banks. And like many Americans, their money was seized when fundamentalism started and the Shah took over, and they lost over a hundred grand. This is in the seventies, you know, a hundred grand and and U.S. dollars that was in the account had to come back to Ohio and we start over uh, with me in the belly and my older brother in tow, who's four years older than me. So they moved back. Luckily for me, both sides of my parents, uh, both of their families owned their homes and investment properties. 
So we were able to have a house that was owned by my grandfather. And I grew up in pretty normal, you know, working class, like inner city lifestyle until crack hit in like 95. Things got so bad so quick. My parents bought a house in the suburbs, even though that we didn't have to pay any rent. So you imagine the sacrifice from living in a house that your parents own to having to pay a mortgage just because things got so unsafe so quick. And in my new public high school, public high school, 15 minutes away from my old house, it was a night and day level of education. That was my first brush with institutional racism, if you will, in a way that was tangible to me, right? Like, not like, like really like the infrastructure of how we do things was blatantly racist. And what I mean by that is property taxes are used to determine the quality of education in public schools. But you have a group of people who had a significant head start on acquiring property through hundreds of years, if not, and then recent, all this, all the fuckery, right? So how do you have this group that's been disenfranchised from acquiring property and then continue that path of, you know, disparate treatment of public sector schools depending on on wealth and property taxes. I think it should be one standard for the state, but that's just me. So my education was night and day, bro, and I had to, like, my physics class, I was AP physics. I showed up. I looked at the test. I got to take a midterm in two weeks. I'm like, bro, I don't know none of this stuff, teacher. I didn't talk so, Seneca, when you went, when you moved, the, the new school was much better, you're saying? Is that what you're much saying? Much better. Much better, right? And then my teacher told me, I said, hey, can I get an extension through winter break so I could take this physics test after winter break? This story I always tell because it made a big difference to me. Um, and the teacher said, no, because you already have a plus 4.0 GPA that we had to absorb from your old school. And we've got complaints from parents that you're threatening to be the valedictorian and all of that stuff, and you've had an unfair advantage because the other school is easier. And I said, I don't care about that story. I care about learning the material and being judged fairly. And he said, well, see how you do, and if for some reason, you know, we can, we can petition afterwards. So um, the, the, the person who ended up being valedictorian, Ari Shapiro, offered to tutor me, and he did, and I got an A on it. But it always stood out that experience for me. Um, and because of that experience, I was able to go to Cornell. Well, I would not have been prepared had I continued my trajectory in inner city education. Right? I may have gotten in, maybe, but I would have been prepared to succeed. And like many inner city children who have poor education to matriculate to high Ivy Leagues or elite universities, the dropout rates are high because they're just not ready for the intensity of, of the curriculum. Right, it's just night and day compared to children who went to private schools or more affluent places. So I went to Cornell, studied industrial labor relations, had a blast in college. I started organizing as a union organizer while in college um, during my junior year summer, and I actually worked and would, would go back and forth my last year of college. I stayed five years to work as a union organizer in California with the United Domestic Workers. 
So the moment I got out of school, studying uh, School of Industrial Labor Relations, I went right into a, like, um, a lead, a director position as a Central Valley director with like 50 staff or like- Jenica, 40, when, so. when you were at um, Cornell, what were your politics like then? Uh, my politics, you know, my politics have never changed. My politics have, I only, I only officially joined the Democratic Party to run for city council in 2020 at the insistence of my campaign manager, who was one of Chase Boudin's uh, ADAs, lovely, lovely, brilliant young lawyer, and she would not take me on as a client unless I joined the party to get myself the best chance to win. It made logical sense to me although not ideological sense, because I've always, always been more of a, a free thinker. But in college, I was a union organizer. And I had the same value system that I have today. Working people need to stop getting the shitty end of the stick. Working people deserve to have more say and control over the means of production. And the experience on economic mobility uh, this country is what makes us special, and labor history is American history, and there's nothing more important to our destination than the American worker and the American family. I've maintained that value system. It seems that this country's values have dramatically shifted, and the reason I got back into politics in the first place was just being a regular neighbor and a local business owner and community organizer. I felt completely disenfranchised. I saw right through the facade of our local labor unions and nonprofits, most of them, not all, who claim altruism, but when you look at their leadership, they don't live in impacted areas or they don't look like the people they mean to serve. Not that that's a requirement, but the pattern is a red flag, especially when it comes to a person like myself, who is black, has dreadlocks, doesn't code switch, it's very um, informal in my approach to mass communication. Could you tell me, uh, before, not to interrupt you, just the code switch word? Code I think switch I'm... means you change when you're talking to white people, to black people, or poor people, to rich people. Got it. So you contain you. You basically say the same as you. I don't saying. ever change. Got it. Now there are slight adjustments to communication to your audience. You don't want to alienate anyone with vocabulary. But when it comes to substance, I don't change. I don't change what I talk about. I only try to make it understandable. If the meaning of communication is the response you receive, I want my communication to be received. So I will make adjustments as appropriate, but not for, um, it's, it's the, like, would you go, like, let's give an example. If I go to 98th in MacArthur, or 98th in International, in the East Bay Dragons headquarters, and I'm talking to a majority core, black and Latino, and then they ask me questions about homelessness and crime and economy. Then I go, to the hill, right? And they ask me the same question. Both people get the same answer. No, I think that's very... Right. Um, how it's was so that when... So when you joined the Democratic Party, did they 
engage more in the code switching or did they? No, there's, it's, I didn't ever join the party. I just registered as a Democrat. I never went to any party stuff. I just registered because in Oakland, if you're not a registered Democrat, you can't come to a lot of the forums and debates. Got it. So being so a they, new candidate, you don't have access. You already don't have a lot of money. You need every opportunity to get your name out. And so they control the political system here. So this time around, um, I'm an independent. And I call myself post-partisan. Meaning, I don't go left, right, I go up, down. Either you have integrity and solutions or you don't. And that's it. That sounds a little bit like the Andrew Yang um, campaign. Yeah, he took my shit, bro. Andrew Yang, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But I will say this uh, members of my campaign worked on Andrew Yang's campaign in, in New York City. And the reason they were attracted to my message was because they saw what Andrew Yang was missing. An actual plan to introduce a third political party to the United States of America. And I've got that plan, and we've started it with proof of concept with me running for mayor in a democratic, super liberal city on a contrarian message while I routinely torment progressive Democrats. And I'm still popular. What I shouldn't be. Do you think you're in a similar movement to like what Tulsi is doing right now? Tulsi Gabbard? Similar, except the difference is, and this is the same thing Tulsi, I don't, I can't comment if she's messing up yet or not, but here's what they're missing, my good neighbor. They're missing neighborship. The reason I call my nonprofit Neighbors Together Oakland, and we will call our political action committee, which started after this election, Neighbors Together America, is the only way to rebuild local politics is locally. People always like to say all politics are local, and then completely ignore the gruel, the organizing, the patience it takes to organize door-to-door, neighbor-to-neighbor. So we're going to start over. And here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. And this, the timeline of this plan can change depending on the political velocity of our country. So this means under current status quo, which is by no means a given, so these numbers can change, but the approach and methodology want. Here's what I'm trying to do in American politics. I want the neighbors to run for offices that impact them. And I want to start a political revolution at the lowest level of politics. What are the lowest level elected positions? And what are the boards and groups or, you know, all the things that make up the electorate advisory boards? What does that look like in your area? I want to pick 100 targets in America. I want to spend two years researching those targets and finding neighbors like myself who are dynamic people who are not traditional politicians, but have the knowledge, skills, and ability to perform a job. And I want to get them elected for a city council, school board, at most mayor, nothing higher than a mayor position. And those will be with cautiously approached. And then you want to win those positions at a 60% win rate. And then you want to get them reelected. That's decade one. That's how long it takes. Then at decade two, 
2030s, if you will, you want to take those same people, if not more, use that pack to run them for higher positions. Now that they've served two terms, they can run for mayor. They can run for a state legislator, a county board of supervisors, whatever. Everybody's set up different, right? Whatever the next level of the trial is. Then and only then would you name your party. It has to remain decentralized and it has to remain asymmetrical because that's what revolution is. That's what revolutions are. A political third party being a legitimate threat to our duopoly that they control with an iron fist is a revolution. Revolutions don't have names until they do. That's what Tulsi and Yang are messing up, in my opinion. It seems like controlled opposition. I'm not going to pass judgment. I like what Tulsi Gabbard's doing, but she needs to take it back local, very, very local, and use her influence to influence local politics, which is that. So thank you for listening to all of that. But that's kind of like the, the, what I'm after here, right? Um, I want what are, to get involved. Do you think the libertarians are doing a similar kind of strategy? I mean, I think you follow. They don't have a strategy. I don't hear a strategy. I don't hear any incubation of language. Language is metaphysical. The party is called the neighbor party. I'm just not naming it. I never say voter. I'll never say constituent. I'll never say voter. I'll never say resident again. I only say neighbor. So let's go through some of your neighbor initiatives. I was looking at your website. Um, well, in Oakland, when we had our warehouse there, <laughs> the neighbors were all kinds from other businesses to street workers to homeless people. Very when, when challenging. Uh, I left four years ago, um, and it was just getting to, to be honest, it was just impossible to do any. I mean, it's just we were on 30th in San Pablo, and it was just, yeah, I know exactly where you're at. You're in the West like me. Yeah, so it was a very challenging place, and it's just, you know, crime. And to be honest, the biggest thing for us was we, we kept getting hit by graffiti, just constant graffiti, and then the city would be there the it's next day to find now. us. You thought it was I, bad then? The whole town's packed now, bro. I know, but they wouldn't. They would fine us, and then we'd have to paint it, and it just became such a cost. You know, we'd paint it. It'd be like $1,000 to paint the whole building or whatever. And then the next day, they'd be threatening us with fines, and then the graffiti would come up again. And we tried to, you know, it's just, we didn't even have a problem with the prostitutes because they kind of, so it, it just like devolved into chaos. And yeah, um, we're collapsing. You're right. That sounds about right. So it's and interesting. Four because, years ago, it's gotten remarkably worse since then, if you can imagine. So I'm interested in that post partisan description because I think Californians are very scared to have quote, Republican or conservative ideals or ideas, but everything you're sounding sounds... I went to Berkeley for college, and it sounds like classic left-wing kind of class politics, your position, um, maybe with a more, you know, decentralized approach. And nowadays, a lot of what you're saying gets kind of tagged as almost right-wing, or I don't know what the politics oh, yeah, are. I'm laying I'm out of here to the progressive. Yeah, so I just wonder. I'm organizer of a farmer, and I've only helped my hood, and I'm I'm a poor guy who doesn't own anything. I'm I'm very fucking elder out here to these progressives, just because I I dare to call them out on the hypocrisy. 
So I'm just curious, how, what's your strategy for, I guess, inoculating against their attacks? Or I think people resonate with what you're saying. I mean, if you talk to moms in Oakland, regardless of oh, what race, yeah. they, they hear what you're saying. So I'm just curious what your strategy is for... Strategy is, is, is door-to-door, keep it small until it's not. But more importantly, tell the truth. Tell it plainly. And don't be afraid. So Gandhi has a great quote that I'm internalizing now as I'm going through these things myself. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they attack you. Then you win. And there's a great video. You ever seen a YouTube video or a video about leadership where there's a narrator describing a boy dancing on a hill on a college party? Are you familiar? No. Walk me through it. Yeah, I'm gladly. So there's a big old college party and they have a big slope like we had at Cornell and all the kids are hanging out, sitting on the grass to music, hanging out and chilling. And there's a lot of music playing. And it's like a big festival. And one guy gets up and he starts doing this funny little dance. But it's a simple dance, but he looks absolutely ridiculous. Right? Think John Travolta in Pulp Fiction or something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Doing a little simple dance. But he's doing it. And he's doing it enthusiastically. And everybody's laughing at him and looking at him. Who's that weirdo? Then her first follower shows up. He does to dance with her. And the narrator goes, if you want to start a movement, you have to be brave enough to stand alone by yourself and look ridiculous. Your first follower is the real leader. Your first follower is the real person who's courageous. That's the underrated form of leadership, is to be the first person to follow the leader of someone who everyone thinks crazy. But the person who's leading moves have to be simple enough to follow. That's a very important part. The moves have to be simple. And then you get your first follower. He does the move. Now, you got two people dancing on a hill. Then a third person comes up. That third person is magical because now you have a group and now you have a movement. The time elapsed from one guy dancing on a hill to not even being able to see him because after the third guy, then a fourth and a fifth, by one minute in, people are breaking their neck, tripping over each other to dance on the hill. And the leader is nowhere to be seen in the picture. That's how you do it. You nurture your first followers. When you have a movement, you keep it going, and you keep your simple moves going. And then you give it up because it's not yours. It's the people. And then we all dance on the hill together, right? So that sounds a little utopian, but the point I'm making is all mass movements and real grassroots movements start like that. And right now, people are trying to buy movement. Any movement that's popular is fake. No grassroots movement of the people to face immense control of people who control the means of production, 
who induce fear and keep people on demented side and absolute rule and social media and all the things they're going up against, if your grassroots movement is immediately popular, then that shit is fucking fake. Right? That's what I thought. I thought right through Black Lives Matter. They co-opted it. It started off legit, and then they co-opted it and bought it out. Now, everybody gets to put... If it's popular, it ain't a revolution. Revolutions aren't popular until they are. Not in its infancy. That's ludicrous. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these arrows and bullets. I'm going to be called every name in the book. Racist, transphobe, whatever the hell you want to call me. Like Eminem said, I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, why would I say I am? I don't give a fuck. And I'm going to dance in that hell. I'm going to keep my moves simple. And those moves are going to sound like this. Working people, we're getting played. Working people, the banks are not your friend. Working people, Democrats and Republicans, alike. The one thing that they both agreed on out of all of this artificial fighting that they do is they all agreed that they should be able to continue playing that stock market, didn't they? Look between the lines. They're not our friends. It's time for a revolution. You want a revolution that doesn't involve killing people and violence? You need to build a parallel system, not only a politics, but a parallel system of neighborhood sustainability, decentralized soil-based economies. That's our revolution. Our revolution is opting out. Our revolution is taking back over our elected positions that control our taxpayer dollars from the small scale and then moving up. They can't stop it without ending our democracy. And believe me, the moment we figure this out, they'll switch the goalpost on us. And maybe we will have to get our guns out. Who knows? That's why I like guns. Right? I like guns because guns are freedom. Um, it, used to be, it used to be a sword or arrow. Right? There's a guy named Lars on YouTube, and I know this is a non sequitur, but this guy named Lars on YouTube is the best arrow dude. He's like the, the, the real Robin Hood. And this dude be shooting arrows and going around a wall and stuff. Remember the, the movie when they were bending the bullets with Angelina Jolie? He was doing that with the arrows. And he was talking about back in the day they were shooting arrows around walls, 90 degree turns. And I'm like, man, they were shooting arrows for thousands of years. Imagine a sky going dark with arrows in a war. It's every which way to kill a person you want. But when it comes down to it, the great equalizer, firearms, allows people to resist oppression and tyranny. And I hope it doesn't come to that. But that's why I'm an enthusiast and I train and I advocate for especially black people and single mothers and poor people to not give up those rights. And make sure that we can keep each other safe because we live in an oppressive system. This is not an okay system. This system is not set up for poor people or working people. So, I mean, basically what I'm getting at is my politics ain't changed a bit. The left just sold out. Yeah, it's unusual to me to see how... Yeah, with the COVID and the, the Ukraine war and there's just no... A lot of things seem flipped now. It's very confusing. Um... Yeah, it's okay for the left to be all, they're making excuses for war. Like, every war 
That's the reason. Remember in, in um, was it Legends of the Fall? Maybe Legends of the Fall. Not Legends of the Fall. Um, no, it was Legends of the Fall, I think. Or maybe it was the one with Mel Gibson. No, the one with Mel Gibson in uh, in um, the Revolutionary War. Remember that movie? Braveheart, but with the Revolutionary War. What does Mel Gibson do there? He he was the father of two young men, and they one of them wanted to fight in the Revolutionary War, or the or the Civil War, or something like that. No, Revolutionary War, Revolutionary War. And his son was like, "We don't do this and this and that." And his father told him, "It's always a reason to go to war. Every every war that will tell you this, if we don't do this, something bad's going to happen." And it's never true. So, right? Seneca in. Oakland or in the Bay Area, the Second Amendment is seen as um, pretty toxic. How do you convince your neighbors that those rights? I don't are agree with that, Flamin. I, I don't. I mean, uh, maybe I'm unfamiliar. Here in Hawaii, there's a lot of guns and a very strong gun culture, and there's a lot of respect towards firearms, both from liberty or for hunting or for sport. Uh, it's a, I would say, a healthy gun culture. Uh, we don't have. In Hawaii, the gun culture maybe of Oakland with illegal guns or gang gun culture. So I'm just curious how you communicate or what's your framing? Maybe I'm not familiar with it. Here's the framing. We're not safe. If the police take 19 minutes to pick up a 911 call, then how are you going to protect yourself and mm-hmm. anyone from anyone violent? I had a young uh, I call her young, but she's in her 60s. One of my neighbors visited me today, and she said, Seneca, I asked somebody, was he voting for you? And they said, no, because that guy put a gun on someone. And I said, well, you go to church with me, and I shot and killed a man before. I didn't know that, but yeah. I said, wow, you shot and killed a man? He said, yeah, my ex-husband came into my house. I had a restraining order, and I shot and killed him. I said, well, good for you. She said, and good for you for protecting yourself. I said, how do you think people think about it? He said, it's mixed feelings. People who live in impacted neighborhoods full of violence, they love it. The fact that someone like you is running for mayor because you're not a criminal. You're a nice guy. You want the garden, right? Like, you just want to help your neighbor. You're fed up. Um, it's a net positive. It's a net positive. There is a, if you look at gun ownership in Alameda County, it's skyrocketed since COVID. The numbers don't lie. That's because we're the... the number one, it's the number one gun state in the country for the last three years in a row is in California. Not Texas. So the numbers don't lie. We buy more guns in California per per person than any other state. Not as a whole, but per person on average. We are the most gun buying state in the country right now. Why do you think that is? Yeah, obviously the crime wave that seems to be growing. So I'm I'm on the hill and my simple move is get you a gun. Go you some food. Those are my simple directions to people. Not like be a vigilante, but be a responsible, trained gun owner. Firearm, I don't like to say fire. And if it's not for you, don't do it. You should not be a right sound mental health. You should not be a substance abuser. But there's a lot of things that go into firearm culture. People who are into firearm culture are usually the most safe people with the least amount of issues. But here's the problem we got right now in Oakland. It's the ghost gun. All the gun control went out the window the moment I could make him in my in my tent or my trailer or my living room or whatever, like a Lego, like Lego. The youth are so smart. Like, 
these kids today, they're geniuses. They grew up with the phones in their hands as babies. They grew up with the iPad in the face as babies. So there's nothing they can't do. I know 15-year-olds right now who will go, who I'll make you whatever you want. I'll build you an AR. I put some, I put the optics on it. I put a fully auto switch on it. 15 years old gunsmith, right? So when, once you got the ghost guns in play, and then don't even talk about the open border, how are you going to be serious about gun control and have a fucking open border? Right? How does that make any sense? They're obviously not serious about it. So we have a gun problem in Oakland. There's too many guns. People use them. They already got the switches on their clocks now. So now you got people dumping mags 30 rounds in a second or so. It goes from seeing 10 or 12 shell cases to 200 shell cases to shoot out. Them bullets go somewhere. They find homes. Some of those homes are people who are innocent. So we're in a lawless, collapsing society. Inflations are high. Food and energy prices are escalating. There's no end in sight. You got presidents talking about well, we may have a nuclear war. People, people scared, bro. I don't even, I don't even worry about stuff like that. To be honest with you, I don't care if they don't like it or not. What I'm going to do is do what I think is right, and I'm going to give. I talk to neighbors all day, every day, in all corners of the city, and they all say the same things to me. I want someone who's serious about crime, who's not into performative politics or purity pageant. I want someone who's not a hypocrite. I want someone who's honest, who can balance the interests between the housed and unhoused, who understands that these external pressures facing Oakland aren't this systemic root cause boogeyman and drop the posturing. Everyone's dealing with these problems. We're going to have to work it out together. And they all tell me this. We don't feel safe. We need more police. We want the roads fixed. We want the homeless regulated. We want to open their drug markets closed. They all tell me this. And I look around, and no one's running on them. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them someone to vote for and see how this little experiment plays out. Right? I'm going to say everything that I know people want. Not you think, are, Seneca, are you shifting okay. some of the window of what other candidates are talking about? Are they responding to your message, or are they Absolutely. just going? Absolutely. So check this out. In January, I debuted at my platform. I want to take us to 900 officers. We're at 680, roughly. I want 900 officers. I want our encampment management policy that was unanimously passed in October 2020, two years ago. I want that implemented. Um, today is the 20th, huh? EMP. Hold on. I've got to do an EMP. Uh, I'm sorry. I was writing something down. EMP anniversary. Ooh, my list is followed up. So I want the encampment management policy followed, and I want City Hall open. We're still under a state of emergency, and City Hall is still closed for COVID. Oh, so in Oakland? Closed. Oh, because they City want to work Hall's from still home. Closed. Yeah, they don't want to do anything, probably. Well, no, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Why do you think we're still in a state of emergency? There's probably some federal funding issue or California funding issue or something, probably. No, but that's a good guess. Um, I, I don't know. Okay, I can't say no. I don't know if that's an influencing factor or not, but that's not the primary factor, in my opinion. It's the primary factor. Tied to our state of emergency is an eviction moratorium. 
that has been going on for two and a half years now. In Alameda County in the city of Oakland, I've had an eviction moratorium for one year longer than most other counties in the state of California. Because of that, people are losing their shirt. People are losing valuations or their projects. Oakland is collapsing economically because no one's investing here because we have a state of emergency and you can't charge rent and people can just not pay. Because of the moral hazard that we created by having just a blanket eviction moratorium where we didn't have any demand or proof that you had hardship and there was no support for the property owner, but they claimed it was, but it never came to fruition. They created such a moral hazard to upwards of 20,000 renters in the city of Oakland are more than eight months delinquent on their rent. They ain't never going to be able to pay that shit. So the moment it's over, you got a wave of evictions. 10% of your city is up for eviction. You can't have that in any you can't have that in election season. Sixty percent of Oakland registered voters are renters. You're gonna get crucified. So they had no choice but to push it until after the election. And mark my words, the moment this election's over, poof, magically, it'll go away. There's a major lawsuit right now against the county of Alabama. There's multiple lawsuits. There's from the landlord? One. Yeah, from the landlord, the California Pacific Legal Fund joint one. It was started by Madison Park with John Porter Popper and California Pacific Legal Fund joint. And then there's another one with the city of Alameda too and the county of Alameda for it over this eviction moratorium. Where you cannot get rent and people can get to live in your place rent free for two and a half years now. Meanwhile, the city council responsible for the state of emergency routinely goes unmasked to social events, travels, all of that, but claims it's not safe to go back to work and be held accountable or have to go to city meetings or open city hall. And there's another reason. Four of, uh, one, two, three, four of our city council people out of six, I mean, out of eight, are currently running for higher offices. So they like not having to go to work. They're working from home because it allows them to campaign on city time. Not that all of them are doing that. It's not a blanket accusation, but it's definitely a motivating factor for at least a select few of them. So Seneca, from you want to? How is is the vibe still about defunding the police in Oakland, or is that just kind no, of no, no? Defunding the police is so bad. The defunders are claiming it never happened. The defunders are like, we never defunded. Got it. So they're, they're, just they're, trying to memory, they're trying to memory. They're trying to memory hold 2020 and act like they never were for defunding the police. It's the most ludicrously comical thing I've ever seen. The progressives here are scared to say the word defund. They're terrified to say that I was for defund, and so they're going to lie and gaslight people and say we never defunded. The budget grew. Yeah, the budget grew, but it grew a lot less than it's supposed to. And we have a lot less cops and a lot less police academies because the budget didn't go enough. To hire them, and you stop that. You had the Department of Violence Prevention and Reimagined Public Safety Task Force that had a stated goal of decreasing OPD's budget by 50%. And now all of a sudden, y'all don't remember that shit? So, no, defund the police is wildly unpopular in Oakland to the point that not a single person running for public office right now would dare use that hashtag. So, are they. 
However, they still regularly rub shoulders and work with the nonprofits who are police abolitionists and these funders. So they're hypocrites. They won't say it because it's not popular, but they'll still do it. And they'll still work with the organizations who say do it, if that makes sense. Got it. And then aside from increasing the police uh, number, what other ideas do you have for the crime issues? Is this educational? Is it parenting? I'm just curious, where's the crime? Is it All of that. All of that. Mentorship, starting urban agriculture, like farm. Like we have legal cannabis and mushroom. Right? Why are we not? And cannabis grows very well outdoors in, in Oakland. I'm smoking on some cannabis. I grew in outdoors in Oakland right now. It's a great place to grow. The kids like it. It makes money. Food, vegetables, all things to be grown here. Our community garden has absolutely made our neighborhood of West Oakland safer, cleaner, and more vibrant. And even the people who are not the best neighbors, the ones selling the drugs or doing the shooting, they even respect it and keep it and protect it. And because of our garden, in my particular neighborhood, we don't have a lot of broken windows. We don't have a lot of the property theft. And a lot of that comes because we work with the people who are selling the drugs, and we tell them, we're not going to tell you what to do or not do, but one thing we need your help with is to make sure that people aren't stealing from us immediately taking it to you to fence the drugs. So if we tell you and we show you some ring videos or we show you the phone videos or whatever, and we show you that somebody's stealing, you got to put them on timeout and not sell them. Sell to them. And we need your agreement on that. And then we want call the cops on you. Right? But Do you have uh, a similar yeah. strategy with the homeless or with the sex workers? The homeless? So the, the, here's the thing about the homeless. The homeless problem in Oakland it's changed. So it's a different problem now, but the other problems still exist. Prior to 2018, when you left, 80% of the homeless people were black and they weren't homeless in the neighborhoods they grew up in. Now, only 60% of Oakland's homeless are black. We've grown, 20, we've grown 24% in the past two and a half years during that eviction moratorium. And the average new face of the new homeless is a white male drug transient in RVs and buses. And they're flooding here, flooding here by the hundreds, right? We went from 360 homeless encampments to 800 in six months, just to last six months. So I don't care how much housing or shelters you build. If people keep coming here, you're never going to keep up. Also, housing first is a failure. We need shelter first and housing earned. If 70% of your unhoused have drug addiction and mental health issues, we're forgetting the 30% that doesn't. The 30% that doesn't need housing first. They're just poor. But the other, they need drug and mental health rehab. We're never going to get a hold of this problem until we, number one, end the open-air drug market and the permissiveness that creates the promised land of milk and fentanyl that Oakland has become. That's the first step. We've got to stop people from going homeless. So we're going to have a big problem with that with our eviction moratorium, as I just said, right? Um, you know, the more I talk about the problems that the mayor's going to inherit, the more I'm like, what the hell am I doing? But someone's got to do it. But um, it's a quagmire. This, I, I believe that we're facing the Great Unwash 2.0. Right? The Great Unwashed. The Great Unwashed. I don't know the that term. Un- you know, no one knows the term nowadays. How old are you, bro? 
And 40. Nehemiah is, yeah. Four. Don't you remember reading about the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl? Correct, yeah. The Great Unwash were the homeless people through the Dust Bowl, because it was dirty, and it was dirty. And all the homeless people in the Great Depression, on the trains and the hobos and the shantytown. We went through this yeah. before. I know the difference, so though, is I just there seems to be a lack of, I don't know if it's the mental illness or the the drugs seem harder. I mean, San Francisco's always had a homeless kind of vibe, but there used to be like more of like an independent hobo kind of vibe, whereas now there's definitely a violence and um, a lack of safety aspect. So I'm, I don't know if that's the fentanyl or the No, it's mad max. It's a drug. It's an open-air drug market for you for all. Filled with hundreds of burned-out vehicles, mess labs that explode, violence, and just, just crazy. You'll be hard-pressed to find craziest things anywhere in the world right now. We can compete in some of our homeless campus in the Bay Area for absolute bunker wildness. They're not like the whole city, but there are places that I compete with the worst songs in Haiti. Ah. Well, at least in Haiti, there seems to be an understanding of the poverty, whereas in Oakland, it's difficult to understand when you have a base of resources there. you have the there. You have the, the glare and wealth disability in front of us. And then we have the escape of, here's the big part, escape avoidance behavior and normalcy bias. And those are mental conditions. What is the normalcy bias? Is that when you start just accepting uh, having people shooting heroin on the street? Is that Yeah, anything that's bad becomes normal and you just accept it. Right? People are biased. Yeah, or if, if someone visited from Singapore, they would have a heart attack, right? If they went to downtown yeah. Oakland. And they're like, yeah. what? They're like, this is not normal. And they're like, oh, it's normal for us. And they're like, well, wake the fuck up. This is not normal. What are you doing? You don't just let people trash your city and call it compassion. You don't let people die of drug overdoses and sleep in their own waste and feces and go around acting all crazy and say, no, they have the right to do that. It's compassionate. No one has the right to disenfranchise another person. We all have to be good neighbors. That's how I put it. I don't care if you're homeless or not. One of my best friends doesn't live in traditional houses. He's a plumber. He just don't want to spend the money on rent. He'd rather spend it traveling. So he has a trailer in our community garden. Great neighbors. One of the most popular people in our neighborhood. Right? We're talking about people being bad neighbors. You're stealing from your neighbors. If you're pooping and pissing and leaving in the street, leaving needles out, acting crazy, you're a bad neighbor. So let's talk to a more conservative, um, maybe the Asian community in Oakland. Are they hearing your message or the business community? Yeah. Or we've gotten a lot of support from the Asian community in Oakland. Um, we have tremendous support from the San Francisco we call Asian American population. Uh, they've donated. They, they, most of my Twitter followers are San Francisco recall people, a lot of them Asian. And they really love uh, my stance on crime. Um, they like that I'm honest about the, the violence that mostly black, young black males are committing against mostly older Asian uh, neighbors. And then I'm willing to speak up about that. Um, and if you look at the recall, which was mostly an Asian, but also a collaboration between Asians and black people in Fillmore and, and other places that were impacted, we're, we're all feeling the same disenfranchisement of the progressive left right now, the woke left, right? We're all saying, like, this is crazy. And 
this doesn't work for us. So we have a lot of support. Um, are they doubling the down? When you talk to the people who are more favorable of harm reduction or those kind of models, are more they... Favorable, uh, more favorable of what? I'm sorry. Let's say the traditional progressive who believes in harm reduction, full legalization. Oh, they hate that shit. It's ludicrous to them. I know, but when they hear you, do they they what, they just think you're a fascist, or what do they they just think? Oh, you're those not? people. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I hate poor people. I'm a racist, fascist, and and any name you can love. I'm literally Hitler. Got it. Meanwhile, meanwhile, my We Deserve Better Coalition has homeless people on it and homeless advocates on it. I've never held a single press conference about about addressing the homeless encampments without having homeless people speak at the press conference. On the, I don't speak for people's lived experiences. I bring them to speak for themselves. And then I reflect what I learned from them, but I never speak for them. Right? That nuance, that aggressive nuance, they hate it. But here's another thing about being aggressively nuanced. Someone can just tell part of the story and make you look crazy. And the reason that people are so sanitized because they don't want to leave any room for weakness. So when you're aggressively nuanced, that means you have to you have to consider alternative perspectives, and you have to allow for just the contradictory nature of how people are. We're very contradictory. It's just how we are, right? It's, it's genetic in us. We're, we're very cautious. So we're always second-guessing ourselves. And I think that it's, it's you know, let me, let me redirect. I think it is a projection. What I, I have a saying, whenever I'm, I'm attacked by the progressive left and they're making up straw man or ad hominem attacks or they can't debate on the issue or they want they just ignore any facts or they're just extremely anti-intellectual in their approach, what I say is their accusations are confessions. When they say you're cool, it's a confession. You're accusing me of being cool. But I'm a person who runs a community garden, grows food. Every Monday, I see people who are homeless. I've housed several people in my empty bedrooms who have been homeless over the years, even though I don't talk about it. I've helped donate to causes, and I work as a community organizer to make sure people are fed. I've helped people have all these things as a philanthropist to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars out of my pocket in Oakland in the past decade. And the people saying this, they just walk their dogs and go home and talk shit at the end of that. They don't even come out the fucking house in the neighborhood. And they have all this judgment and sanctimony about what actual stakeholders and activists are doing and saying. It's disgusting. It absolutely is. It, it, you know what it is? This is the last stage before genocide. And now I truly understand how such intelligent people. You know, Germany, uh, another, I, I do this a lot. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little. Uh, I'm a little space cadet sometimes, but I my, my my mind floats around and things that are connected to me may not sound like they connect, but to me they connect. Germany and Japan did a cultural exchange in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Are you familiar? Correct, with the major restoration, yeah. Beautiful part of global history that, that should be encouraged more, right? More nations should engage in cultural exchanges like they did. Both of these people were very intelligent, old cultures with a lot of tradition, a lot of pride, a lot of reverence. German, engineering, analytical, 
Japanese people, engineered, analytical, deep, reflective. And they both, in one decade, lost their fucking minds and started genocide and shit. How did that happen? These were educated, intelligent, intentional societies. What happened to them? What's happening to us right now? And if you look at the rhetoric and the escalation, the hypocrisy and the sanctimony and, and the, you know, the, uh, the purity, all, all of that, the, uh, I forget the name of it, but uh, virtue signaling, all those things happen. And when you study, when I look at history, this is one of the last phases before I just have to kill you because you have a different opinion than I do. We're doing it virtually. We're trying to cancel people. We're going to really start canceling people if we don't get our shit together. Well, that's what's so attractive about your neighbor model. It's very hard to kill someone who you know and work with and plot and have a garden with, right? So that is a that's good part, brother, now That's the green pill. Everybody got a pill now. That's what we call the green pill. When you realize that nothing else matters but your neighbor right now, and the only way to start over is to is to build mutual aid and resilient communities. But guess what? If we all do that, we all just stop, plant our own feet, and let our own roots grow in our community, it's going to overlap quickly. Because there are not they're not natural borders, right? What what is your neighborhood beginning in? That's why I call you my neighbor in Hawaii. Right? That's why I love Mr. Rogers. Once you be my neighbor, everybody's a neighbor to Mr. Rogers. Very powerful word. Neighbor, neighborship. What does it mean? Neighbor and country, neighbor and city, it never stops. Right? So let's start over. Let's start over with the people who live around you. Because if something happens, those are going to be the only people that matter. So, Seneca, going back, back to your green pill, what where did you get that green pill from? What, did someone start a farm, or did you work on a farm, or where did you get in touch with the earth first? Uh, you know, my grandfather always had a farm. He's from Alabama. They were, he kept a lot next door. But to be honest, I came to, I, I came to Oakland, and I left the unions in 2014, and I wanted to cook. I was really into cooking, and I wanted to like cook and start a restaurant. And so I moved to Oakland, and right down the street was a community garden. I had just started. And uh, I didn't know much about growing food or any of that, but I got involved, and here you go, 10 years later, um, I know all about farming and growing food, and I've, I've learned a live, you know, livestock and all of that. Um, I learned a lot from the Garden's co-founder, my good friend Jason Byrne. He's from rural Michigan, and he's just, that's his lifestyle. So everywhere he goes, he just shoots goats, chickens. He recreates his home. Right, and so he's largely responsible for bringing that energy to the lower bottom. And as an organizer, I help facilitate or, or blow it up or just make it, you know, bigger and better and get more attention to it. But on a day to day, he's milking the goats, and getting the chicken eggs, and and all of that. So when I started doing it, and I started Ocala Festival out of the garden, we wanted to sell. We were selling breakfast sandwiches. We had a little pop up. And I to sell more breakfast sandwiches, I wanted to throw parties. So I had a Halloween party. We sold a bunch of food. Then I had a Christmas party. We sold a bunch of food and drinks. And I was like, 
people are having a ball in the garden. It was just, it was like, I've never seen people happier than being around nature and birds and bees and chickens fucking and, and they're in the inner city and it's this beautiful surrounding and towering sunflowers. There's a, an article on Magazine, uh, Maker Magazine about um, Bottoms Up Community Garden. You can Google it called Organizing a Community Hub Around a Garden or something. And I said, ah, this is it. And so we start upscaling it. And even though that the garden will only anchor the festival and it will go all the way down the block, the energies remain. And it just made sense, right? We need to, these are the new community centers. These are the new places that are third spaces that we need. They serve a dual purpose of giving people an outdoor space to engage with their neighbors, get out the house, get, get exercise, fresh air, and sunlight. But it also, you're not going to replace your food supply, but you can supplement your food supply with fresh vegetable, vegetables and eggs that are not only very expensive for their counterparts, but the nutritional density is unrivaled, right? So it helps us become healthier. The gal- I mean, we get like a gallon of goat milk a day. It gets shrunk by a few of us. That's a lot of calories we don't pay for. Right? That's, that's high, like high quality calories and fatty acids and all the eggs that we get from ducks and chickens and the honey from the bees and the herbs from the, all of that saves money when you add it up. Right? You're talking about a lot of money when an heirloom tomato could be three to five bucks in a store. So Seneca, so is that, that your model then for the city of Oakland? Not absolutely. just agricultural. So but... I have a, I have a campaign platform and I read it off the flyer for you. So it's, it's succinct. Um, part of our campaign platform is changing our city charter for a more accountable mayor. I'm not going to go into that because most people can't follow it. But our charter is confusing, and we have a hybrid system of government unique to Oakland. There's no clear delineation of power in our city, and that's why there's no accountability in Oakland's government. So one thing we're going to do is a charter amendment to give the mayor line-item veto power and legislative uh, power over uh, over city legislation. Um, so if you understand that, you do. If you don't, I, I can't explain much more. But here's the flyer. Oakland is new leadership. Oakland's crime is destroying our potential. Uh, we just talked about the crime. But businesses are failing and neighbors are leaving because the mayor won't enforce laws and stop crime. We are no longer functioning as a city. and We are losing rule of law. I'm going to empower our OPD to increase our staff for the 900 officers and prioritize safety. Uh, we'll fight for vehicle confiscation and heavy fines to deter illegal dumping and clear abandoned vehicles. I've already went over the homeless part. But then the third part is growing food brings neighbors together and improves our community's health and safety. As food grows more expensive, families and elders will need to access healthy food locally to stay healthy. Seneca will lead the creation of a Department of Agriculture in Oakland dedicated to increasing our agricultural identity and viability to create a soil-based economy. So I put it on my platform and on my website, and everyone said, people are going to think you're a weird hippie. And I said, well, it's order of operation. It's the last thing, right? We we address the climate homeless first, but there's no out for that, right? There's no silver bullet. We're in the age of consequence. We got to weather the storm, right? That's just what it is. But something positive is growing that food and creating 
uh, an edible and forageable and walkable Oakland and bikeable Oakland. And that, to me, will be the most important thing that I'll accomplish as the next mayor. Um, because that's the real solution to building a parallel system in Oakland to sustain us as the current system pretty much collapses before our eyes. Seneca, who are some of your mentors that are advising you or you're looking to follow or emit? Hmm. Um, I have a hive mind of people who are my friends who we argue all the time. Um, Mentor-wise, you know, he's dead. I never met him before. But Christopher Lass, if you're familiar, the philosopher is absolutely a mentor with his writings he left behind. In particular, the revolt of the elite, the betrayal of democracy, which I believe is an amazing book. Uh, he wrote it and published it in the early 90s, and it describes what we're going through right now eerily. Um, I've always looked up to Booker T. Washington and Fred Hampton um, as, as mentors from beyond with the legacy and, and theology of revolution that they left with us. And I talked to Dr. Chris Martinson. I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah, Peak Prosperity. Yep. Yeah, you know, I watched that guy for two and a half years, two years. Randomly hit him on Twitter one day. And next thing I know, I'm on a show. I've done, I've done an episode with him. It was the most awesome thing ever. And now we talk. I actually he he'll answer policy questions, he'll do research. He's absolutely one of my mentors and, and people who I got that from him. I don't go left, right, I go up, down. That's Chris. Right? That's his thing. Either you have integrity or you don't. Verbatim, that's Dr. Chris Martinson. So he's definitely one of my my mentors now in terms of like real people who I can call for advice and not necessarily the political stuff. Because he thinks I'm crazy for running. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah. I think it's important regardless of your effect. I mean, just shifting the window to, like you said, a mirror on some of the policies that aren't working and trying to find policies that are effective regardless of politics. That seems like what people in the Bay Area are looking for. Right. I mean, they just evicted or recalled Chesa Bowden because his policies weren't working and people are looking for alternatives. Right. So it's the same. Uh, I think the Schellenberger. Oh, they, don't they don't have any. I know Schellenberger too. Well, I don't know. I've met with Schellenberger. I mean, I know, I do know him because I met with him, but we're not friends. And then I, I just shot some content with his friend uh, Leighton Woodhouse, I think his name is. Um, yeah, the, the journalist. Yep. Yeah, he lives in Oakland. He's a, he's a neighbor here. Um, and I, I went to talk to him for a brief moment and we shot some content. But he got clean. Schellenberger is disappointingly low in the polls. I thought he was going to get a lot more votes. I didn't think he was going to win, but I thought he was going to get a lot more votes than he did. He didn't even beat out the Republican candidate. And there's no reason for that. So what I've done is I've courted the Republican vote in Oakland. We have the Alameda County Young Republicans door knocking Oakland Republican voters for and I've been open that, you know, many many Bay Area Republicans are really post-partisan. This is a duopoly, and they don't want to be 
independents or libertarians, they want to side. So they end up being team led. But if you talk to them, they're not like MAGA Republicans. They're more like regular Republicans. The regular Republicans are almost indistinguishable from Obama Democrats, right? Like, what's the difference with these people at this point? So there's a lot of votes there. There are 10,000 registered votes uh, in Oakland for registered Republicans, 7,500 who vote pretty much in every election. And we're aggressively caught. That's our secret path to victory because it's such a ranked choice voting combined with five candidates who are really in this, anything can happen. Is there, what's your strategy for building a cabinet? So for building a cabinet, um, I've already got some ideas in my head. So if I win, the, um, I, I would take the current, I don't know if you know the players in Oakland, but there, there are two, there are two main positions you got to worry about first. The city manager and his, his the, the third position. I forgot the name of it. The city manager runs the city, but the city administrator runs the city. And then the other city administrator runs the interdepartment, um, runs the interdepartment like coordination, right? Like they're the, the guy who has to do all the work to get all the departments to work together and, and, and get things done. Got it. Yeah. Um, that's Joe DeVries. So I would, I would get rid of Ed Raskin. The current city administrator, Ed Raskin, to me, he needs to go somewhere else. And the third in charge, Joe DeVries, has been around a long time. And we need continuity of government, especially with something as complex as Oakland's corruption. So I would elevate uh, Joseph Lee to the city administrator role as interim. He's going to have to earn that job if he wants it. He's going to have to earn that job. At least I'll have continuity of government. Um, I will be recruiting from my own personal circle. I have lots of friends who I went to Cornell with who have served as city managers in the state of California for various cities who are very skilled um, and, and really smart business people that come with their own connections. Hopefully, one of them will accept the job and be um, the number three for a while. And then after that, I'm going to have to see what, what, what's up with the neighbors. The whole point of getting the neighbor in office is to empower the neighbors. So I'll immediately have a neighbor conference at, at um, wherever city, wherever we can have it at downtown, and either Franklin Dollar Plaza, City Hall, somewhere in the city government, and invite all neighbors who have a special set of skills, like Liam Nelson, if you will, right? And all neighbors who want to work for Oakland and, and have executive-level positions or appointed board positions show up, and we're going to have a whole um, symposium to educate them on what those positions do and just, just work it out and see where we can find talent at from our neighborhood and not do the same thing everyone else does, which is, Put people there that can that can get you influence with other people, right? But we're going to really seek out the best people to start, and we're not going to have a lot of time to do that. Another issue, I mean, because it's only two or two months from the elections that are sworn in. Um, another thing is we have twenty percent vacancies in our city, so it's not just building your own cabinet. It's how do you attract people to want to work for Oakland? Just think that this is an exciting place that's only up and up. And we are. We have 
perfect. I mean, you live here, you know. The weather's perfect. There's no reason Oakland shouldn't be the best city in the United States of America. We have everything we need right here. A port, a culture, idyllic weather, access to the region. Like, the only thing we're missing is good leadership. Well, it's very exciting to have an optimistic view, Seneca, I think. I mean, it's just, I'm, I wish you the luck. It sounds, I'm very proud that you're at least trying to shift the window and try to find solutions. That seems missing from most politicians. So I, I commend you on that, Seneca. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, every, every voice helps. All your friends you left behind here in, in Oakland, let them know to vote for me. Send me money if they got some money. We still need it. Um, every day we're fighting and that's it, man. Thank you for the hour and listening to me and providing me a platform to, to share what we've been working on. And Seneca, what's the best way for people to follow up with your campaign? They can go to Seneca Scott for OaklandMayor.com. We have one-on-one Zooms there. I do them every day. Uh, I don't think there's another candidate as accessible as I am. You can schedule yourself for 15 minutes with me. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I try to be on Twitter. I try to be as responsive as I can. Um, Obviously, I'm in the middle of a campaign, so that's not perfect. But the best way to get a hold of me is email and to schedule a one-on-one Zoom because you'll have a meeting with me and I'll pop up on your computer and you can ask me anything you want. Great. Well, Seneca, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, best of luck. Uh, we'll publish this interview and hopefully it gets you some more support and more questions and more people engaging and building uh, neighbors. Thank you. I really appreciate it.